Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Design Related Podcast, where we talk to our favorite designers about their origin story, what they're working on now, and everything in between. I am Francisco Hui. And I'm Mike McDearman. Today, we're talking with Matt Rothenberg, designer turned engineer turned designer again, about transitioning between these roles and why he's such a big fan of living style guides. So let's get started. One of the reasons why I was excited to talk to you is that you have experience as both a product designer and an engineer working on really complicated software problems. And I'm curious that like looking back on your experiences of the two, which one did you feel was kind of like the net more challenging of the two? Yeah, that's a great question. I think they were challenging in different ways, right? Like for instance, I got into product design by way of front end development. And so going into product design, um, I think I had pretty good facility on the visual side of things, you know, could arrange things spatially, all that came fairly easy. I think the biggest learning curve there was doing things like user interviews, learning how to not say, um, uh, you know, do the bad things that you do in user interviews, like ask leading questions. And I continually struggle with that. And I think I have a lot of progress to make to that end. Now, when you flip that and think about the engineering world, um, I have tremendous facility on the front end, but I know that I can barely hold my own on the back end side of things. And some of the things that I would imagine engineers here at Pivotal take for granted, like setting up databases and thinking through how to organize data, keep me up for nights and I just can't can't sort them out, right? So it's funny, I mean, it, there's, there's a pretty strong convergence right now between the front end side of things and the product design side of things. So I kind of like sitting in that happy medium there and being able to help both sides of the aisle kind of uh, get to agreements faster and ship value faster. So given that like that all the things that you just described, like one person in a large organization could take ownership of like any one of those things. So I'm curious how in your role right now, you kind of compartmentalize and you know, focus on what's important. And, you know, even though that you have experience in doing all these things, you can't possibly do all of them all the time, right? Yep, absolutely. It's tough. Um, I think deep down, I love being in code and I have to stop myself from just like turning to that because it's a convenient way to solve a problem or it's something that's going to be stimulating for me. I have to be judicious in which tools I apply to which problems. And it's been a learning, right? Working at a startup now where there are a million problems to solve and everything's on fire, you have to be very judicious about picking the right hat. You know, is it the product designer hat time because the founder's off on some crazy spiel about solving a problem that maybe we don't want to be solving or do the engineers are they struggling with something that really needs an engineering eye to come in and kind of help sort them out so i think being able to assess the problem and figuring out which hat to wear that's kind of been the best way for me to not think about myself in terms of dual roles but rather a a wide skill set that can be used to solve various problems if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely can can we talk about maybe um how you the different transition points that you you've went through um maybe like what triggered it for you to consider hey maybe it's something else that um i should try out yeah um i distinctly remember working um in louisville kentucky that's kind of where i cut my teeth on front-end development and for about the first six months i was in love with it because it was all new taking you know psds or mock-ups and turning them into code was just awesome i loved it and then about month seven came along and I was like, oh my God, this is the worst like rote execution of boring, nonsensical, non-value stuff I've ever done. And I think that's what kind of lit the fire in me for wanting to use front end to actually solve problems, not just to translate a PSD or make a client happy. And I think that's why at that juncture, I kind of turned to product design as a way to 
deepen that skill set through the lens of identifying problems and solving them and not just, you know, like I said, turning PSDs into wine, so to speak. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, at, so at, at what point was it, was it just purely about technical familiarity with where, you know, like at, at the beginning of learning how to do all this magical front end stuff, it was exciting and, and in the sense that it was new and you're figuring out how it all works. And then was it just that once, once you figured out how it worked, then, then you lost interest in it or what, what was there, what was the like tipping point where it went from exciting to dull? Yeah. I haven't thought too extensively about that, but thinking back now, there wasn't a tremendous variety to the product work project work that we were doing at the time. It was a lot of like print shop comes up with a website concept. A lot of those things can't be done on the web have conversations with the designers to make it web-friendly, translate that. So I might have just been a little bit beaten down from that and turned to product design as a way to sort of, again, light the fire and get inspired again to, to dive deeper into the field. And it's it's funny how it worked. Like immediately when I started to read books about product design, um, I realized, holy moly, there are so many more opportunities to build user interfaces with these front-end tools. And I felt like I had unlocked a new way to apply the skills, but using the same techniques that I had kind of leveled up in and grown familiar with over time. So it was kind of a green pasture to that end of new opportunities. So what was your next step then? Yeah, I got lucky. Um, Pivotal actually reached out um, apropos of a recommendation, I think from Nina, I can't quite recall, Um, but it was really awesome. Um, I went, interviewed with Tim McCoy out in San Francisco, did a product design interview that I was totally ill-equipped for, you know, like designing these screens on a whiteboard in front of two really, really solid product designers, and I'm just like this bumbling idiot. Um, And it was nice. It was a very humbling experience, and it opened my eyes to the amount of work I had to do. Um, But the cool thing about working at a place like Pivotal is that that kind of, I think, skill set is welcomed with the expectation that you do apply what you're good at doing and pick up those other skills sort of by osmosis or just through pairing. So that was kind of like the immediate translation. It was really lucky, though, I think, in terms of getting that opportunity and seizing it. And I think the next transition was back into an engineer role, right? Yeah. Gosh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. It was tough. Um, you know, switching over to the engineering role at Pivotal was fun, um, particularly because the project that I was on at the time was very front-end heavy. So it was a nice, safe space for me to be an engineer. But I think I quickly realized within about two months of doing that, there was so much more work to do to actually become an engineer. I always felt like a designer in engineer's clothing and just I didn't have the real facility to contribute to the team. So I carried a lot of weight, I think, um, psychically, and that weighed really heavily. And that's when I realized maybe it's not worthwhile to, to, to be an engineer just for the sake thereof. Rather, why don't you find that space neatly in between design and engineering where there is a skill set that is more front end in nature and has that sort of natural, I think, gravity towards what we do as designers. To say, though, that you're <clears throat> completely ill-equipped, there's a little bit of modesty there because like, you know, there's the, the engineers that are at Pivotal are, are pretty heavyweight engineers in order to get into that role there is an interview process and and you do pair with an engine an engineer and solve some pretty pretty gnarly problems so i i wonder like yeah you there there is a 
uh, a deep level of knowledge to 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 join that club, so to speak. So yeah. I wonder, like, how how did you prepare for that, and what was what was that transition like? Yeah, so I kind of attacked it from the angle of Pivotal loves test driven development. I better learn test driven development in and out. Now, in hindsight, that's not a good proxy for being a good engineer. I think it's a great way to think about problems, and there's reasons why they use test-driven development to engineer solutions to problems. But at the end of the day, you know, I might be able to reason about a problem, but applying the skills you actually need to solve it proved pretty tricky. Um, Not insurmountable, to be sure, but I think I knew that I had enough work to do there, and I didn't necessarily want to do that work. Uh, And that's why, again, front-end was this awesome, like, it's kind of confused where, you know, where it's at right now in terms of how we work, right? Like is front end design, is design front end, should designers code, LOL, right? Like these are the questions we ask ourselves, but I think they're good questions. And I think they speak to just how intermixed those two disciplines are. So that sounds like that's a sweet spot that you've been looking for. Can you talk about how that uh, manifests itself in the work that you're doing now? Definitely. So it kind of manifests in a couple of ways. I'll tackle it for from two ways. First would be sort of the, the prototyping aspect. So I'm a bit of a weirdo in that when it comes to translating, maybe let's say a drawing or a low fidelity sketch from a whiteboard, I don't like going into something like Sketch or Illustrator and turning that into a higher fidelity version. For me, I've always had just greater facility by opening up a text editor and using the the tool that I'm best at uh, using CSS and markup to, to make that something real. Now, the cool thing is that you can add fidelity from there very, very quickly, and you can add a lot of fidelity moreover. So thinking about prototyping with data, thinking about adding real interaction design, those are all sorts of add-ons and value adds that code, I think, affords you in a way that sometimes these prototyping tools don't. Uh, the tools can be clunky, whereas I think the tools of the web were designed to solve these problems. And so I kind of like to use them to that end. Now, the second angle where I think the code kind of meets the design is the style guide stuff that I'm really, really into, design systems, as it were. Um, using code is such a great way to canonize our design decisions, to build supporting documentation and websites or whatever we need to sort of reinforce our decisions and disseminate those with a broader audience. So I'm trying to hone in to that end, the design systems route, given how popular it is and given how fun it is, um, but realizing there's a lot to it. Um, and I'm sure we'll dive into that deeper. But um, yeah, I would say those are kind of the two uh, areas of attack. Yeah, so... When when people usually think about front end, they're also thinking about, um, well, not, we're talking about, about it from the designer's perspective now. So I imagine that the engineers also have an opinion on what front end, where the front end line is. So how do how do you um, work through that with your engineering team? Yeah, I tend to to apply my energy where I'm um, best, which is basically the HTML, CSS, and JavaScript side of things. Now. JavaScript's interesting because now it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You can use it on the server side. You can use it on the client. For me, it tends to be a means to an end to do a couple of things. One, um, let's say use data to add fidelity to the prototypes or designs that we're making, or B, uh, enhance our design decisions from an interaction design standpoint. So thinking about things like animation, uh, that sort of thing. And I purposely leave the more what I'll call plumbing aspects of the front end job, which is like setting up pipelines, making sure this file turns into that file, turns into that file to the engineers because A, I'm not interested, to be quite honest, and B, I think that's a distraction from where I add value. Now, that doesn't mean when I go home or on the weekends I might pick that up, but at the day job, that doesn't seem like a wise or judicious use of my time. 
how do you know? So, uh, in, in, in my experience, a lot of these tools can be a slippery slope because they're amazing shortcuts to getting a really high fidelity prototype, but they're also, like you said, now ubiquitous and just as prevalent on the front end as they are on the back end. So how do you know what is enough for the level of fidelity that you're trying to achieve and to what goal are you typically working towards? Yeah. So I I think we have to remember that this is a tool, right? It's not like a panacea or a cure for the world's problems, right? It's a means to an end. So classic point, if I'm trying to quickly validate a design decision and I feel like I need a level of fidelity that a sketch or an actual prototype or an Envision prototype can't give me, I'm going to use code because A, it's not going to take me a long time to do it. And B, I'm confident in the level of feedback that I might get from that. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it'll confirm the design decision that I made, but I'll feel confident that I went into it with what I needed, the right stimulus, as, as it were. Um, but to your point, I think we have to be mindful of whenever using a tool that's not familiar, we have to time box. We have to assess, am I doing too much? Am I falling into a rabbit hole? And with code, that happens, I think, a little bit more often than with your standard design tool or, you know, run-of-the-mill design program. <clears throat> it's it's also, though, I, I, I mean, for me, at least, it can happen with anything. Like, I can fall into a rabbit hole with Sketch and, you know, what it's hard sometimes to draw the line of where is too much uh, visual fidelity and, you know, how much detail do we need right now? Let's just put the, you know, the bare minimum of what we need to learn what we need to learn uh, right now. But it's it's really hard to do. I just, I, I'm curious because like all these tools are, are uh, N number of other things to add complexity when you're trying to figure out what the next step is from a design standpoint. Yeah, I think we have to keep in mind our calling and our duty to the team that we belong to, right? It's about solving problems and moving the needle from a product perspective. And I've certainly made the mistake of, you know, spending too much time debugging something or diving deeper into a JavaScript problem that I didn't need to solve and the team suffered for it. So I think I realized I can certainly do that, but I'm letting people down in so doing. And it might be a better use of my time to find the right tool for the job and take up that rabbit hole on a Saturday morning over coffee as opposed to Thursday at two when we have a five o'clock deadline. For for designers out there listening that might be interested in uh, going down those rabbit holes or, or becoming more comfortable with front end, um, do you have any tips or starting points on how they might approach it? Yep. Um, first one is avoid designer news. Just don't go spelunking through the websites and the reddits and the subreddits on that stuff. I think there's a lot of noise there. And the best tactic that I've been able to use, I think, to sharpen my craft has been to identify things that I've wanted to build. And they can be small, they can be big, but at the end of the day, they have some personal weight or import. I find that I apply myself to those kinds of tasks in a way that I don't oftentimes with my client work or my you know day job work. And finding a problem that you want to solve is a great way to really convince yourself that, hey, this is a great use of my time and I can really pick up an additional skill by solving something that has personal value. And then once you've identified the problem, are there any resources or, or methods that you go about, um, you know, whether it's, you know, either digitally or like in person, what are, what are some of the venues that you start um, looking for or, or answers when you hit a roadblock? Definitely. So Google's obviously your best friend. No surprise there. I think there's so much great literature out there in terms of learning front-end development. I think um, it's it's helpful to learn sort of the fundamental um, atomic basic, you know, just blocks of the the approach. So understanding CSS, understanding the box model, those things are super, super valuable. And I know they can seem pedantic and academic at times, but 
as someone who um, kind of learned things by himself, I really wish I had gone through the rigor of doing the 101, the 201, the 301 about HTML and CSS to build up that foundation such that now I can understand why things are changing, why we're moving away from floats, why flex is good, why grid is good. And I don't think you get that necessarily unless you do that due diligence and kind of understand where the pain is, right? Can you also maybe talk about um, some of the blog posts you've written and how, how that factors into your learning process? Yeah, so I do love teaching. At the end of the day, I think I was a teacher in a past life. And for me, teaching is an awesome way to convince myself that A, I know enough about a subject to actually speak to another human being about it with confidence and not have them look at me like I have four heads. So um, a lot of the blog posts that I do write are tutorial-esque in nature or didactic to that end. For instance, I wrote one about Vue.js, a JavaScript library that I've been using extensively personally and professionally. And I took a really banal design problem of building like the Twitter composed tweet box and using a different tool to solve that problem. And for me, it was an awesome way to, again, show the world that I can speak as an authority on something, show myself I could speak as an authority on something, uh, and give back to those who, again, are trying to solve a problem and need just that sort of uh, leg up to get started and uh, something to wrap their heads around that isn't super dense or super uh, domain complex. You talked a little bit a while ago about style guides and some of the things, some of the benefits that you get by spending the investment to create one. But I wonder, what is it specifically about style guides that gets you really excited? Yeah, that's one I've been thinking about a lot lately as someone who at work is building um, a design system and feeling a lot of pain around how that's coming together. So I think some of the obvious benefits that shouldn't come as a surprise are building a consistent visual and experiential uh, an experience, I should say, for your end users, that's kind of table stakes, right? Like that should be the North Star of what we do. More recently, I'm learning, though, that there's a different set of users when we talk about design systems and style guides, which are the people you work with, the engineers who are going to consume the style guide, the stakeholders who are going to look at what you're doing and ask, is this a good application of your time, Matt, the designer? Is this a good application of your time, John, the engineer? And so it's been cool to sort of approach design systems as a design problem and understand a set of users that have a pain point or a problem and building in a process that allows for them to give you feedback about how you're going, feedback about what they need next, and again, just feedback that this is actually solving a problem and not just an initiative for the sake thereof, if that makes sense. I can elaborate. So that makes a lot of sense. And I understand that value for a company or a product uh, team to create a style guide that they then consume as end users. The thing I'm really curious about your opinion on is this sort of proliferation of companies that are creating their own style guides and then opening them up for public use. And in many cases, it kind of seems like almost a flood of, of too many options for a designer when you're starting a project now that, you know, Google has their own design system. Apple's had their own design system for a while. Now MailChimp has one. You know, Yahoo has one. It, all, almost every company you can expect that has a digital product has a style guide. And what do you see as the benefit of offering those up for public use? 
Yeah, I think it exposes the designers and engineers who want to build these style guides sort of a nice um, foundation for understanding what goes into a design system, what it might look like to set up something like governance for future iterations and contributions to that style guide. And at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of these things are overwhelmingly similar just because they look different visually. They tend to have some kind of content model or schema, right? You know, there's like primitive atomic elements that are composed into more complex ones that are composed into more complex ones. And I think it's neat to be able to see the ways in which different companies kind of compose those constituent parts together. And at the end of the day, it's really the responsibility of someone who wants to make a style guide to figure out what's the bare minimum that they need to be successful and not look at like material design as the end all be all of what it means to be a style guide. Because I can guarantee you, if you set your scopes on that as you know what success looks like, you're going to fail just because it's not the problem that I think you, the designer, are having. So identify the real pain point and start to pull bits and pieces from those different style guides to solve it. And I think you and your team will be far happier for it. So what after, after you create a style guide, you spend the time uh, and the effort to figure out what needs to be in the style guide for the engineers to consume, to be able to, you know, ha- to, to achieve all the goals that you just outlined, uh, with respect to having this kind of, uh, you know, repeatable pattern of, of, um, uh, components. What's next then? What happens to the style guide once it's sort of out there. So at the risk of being pedantic, there is no after the style guide, right? The style guide is the process. And I know that sounds hand wavy and silly, but it's really important to step back and remember that this is never done. It's living for a couple of reasons. One, because it's always changing, but two, because you're constantly getting feedback about how it could be better. And I would love to see an example of a style guide that's just so buttoned up and so perfect that no future iterations are necessary, right? So I think it's really important to understand that the style guide is always going to be changing and to implement processes that make those changes very easy, right? That's the whole kind of like agile mindset and the way you all work at Pivotal, right? Set yourselves up to change easily because that cost um, can be very, very high if you're not in a position to do so. Um, And I think that starts from, again, um, approaching things atomically, starting with the bare minimum of what you need and building up from there, as opposed to sort of building out the most complex thing first and figuring out how you can pull that apart to smaller bits. So for for the companies then that have a style guide and then are somewhat at a loss of like what to do with it and how to best leverage it and how to create those processes that you were talking about of, of making it easy to to grow and adapt to change, what does um, implementing a style guide look like in an ideal context? Yeah, it's a good question. It should never be done in a vacuum, right? It should always be in service of some group of people. And again, I think the reason why I've been so into style guides lately is because the obvious beneficiary of style guides are the end users because their experience is consistent and clean and all those things. But at the end of the day, the real users of it are the people who are going to be applying it, likely the engineers. And so um, I think it's really important to, while you're building a style guide, make sure that you're getting that feedback early and often and not just like building it in a silo and then releasing it. I've been there. I've done that. It doesn't work. Um, Maybe for some people it does because you've built it so beautifully or so well executed that it just can slide into this, that, the other code base. But for example, at work right now, um, I've kind of fallen in in the trap of building things in a vacuum and not realizing how they might fit technically into the engineer's workflow. And we're paying down a lot of debt to make that happen. And I think that's a, a smell that I didn't do my research at the early stages to identify 
what's the smallest thing we can do to fit this into their workflow and learn from that? Could you give us maybe more detail on that? Is it just integrating specific components or I'm not I'm trying to imagine what that what it's? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, the front end is like the wild, wild west, as you all know. There are so many tools, frameworks. I think three came out in the time that we've been talking right now. Um, so I've been building a style guide with Vue.js. It's a great JavaScript library. The engineers are working in a Rails code base. All I can say is trying to get that Vue style guide, which works perfectly on my machine, you know, what I always tell them, into a Rails application is not a cakewalk. And I think I have made probably a mistake in not vetting out the best approach at the early stages. And now we're paying down a massive technical debt and I'm having to do a lot more front-endy work that is sort of like the plumbing stuff I was referring to earlier to make that happen because I have a vested interest in seeing this, you know, turn out to be a success. I validated a lot of the design decisions that are in that style guide, but getting it into the hands of the engineers who are the real users of it is a massively challenging process. Maybe this is also a good time to talk about uh, Runway. Yeah. And tell us what it is. Definitely. How to start it. So Runway is a tool I built sort of in my free time um, for a couple of reasons. One, during my tenure at Pivotal, I observed a pretty common problem where a designer who had strong facility in HTML and CSS, so front end for, for want of a better term, needed a tool to turn a style sheet into a living style guide that was published to the internet that they could share with a client or share with a colleague and not have to worry about all the minutia involved like hosting and building and deploying and writing a script to turn the CSS into whatever. Not fun. A lot of the tools out there are very dev heavy in which you need to know something like Ruby or PHP or deep JavaScript. And I thought that was a disservice to a lot of the designers who have the requisite parts. They just don't have necessarily the skills to translate it. Runway came about as a web application to take what those designers had, HTML and CSS, and via a web interface actually convert that to a living style guide. Um, so that happy path to value was, I hope, built out in a Rails application that you can find at runwayapp.io. Um, and yeah, I got a lot of really great feedback on it. Um, it's certainly not robust. It doesn't solve everyone's problems. But for me, it was a nice way to use sort of the full stack skill set that I don't really think I have, but maybe I do to solve a problem that I observed uh, my colleagues and friends going through. Is there a next step for Runway? Or what's, what's, what's happening with Runway today? I don't know. I think I'm really invested in the success of my current design system. I think I have a lot of learning to do from there. Maybe six months down the road, I might know what the next steps for one Runway are. But at the current moment, I think it solves the problem. Not everybody has that problem, but um, I'm content with leaving it at that and calling it a, a fun personal project to talk about at podcasts or interviews or what have you. Yeah. And then um, related to personal projects, um, how do you find the time and energy to work on side projects after full-time jobs? With increasing difficulty. So as I get older, it gets a lot harder. Um, on the weekends, I do try to spend a couple of hours coding a, because I really, really just enjoy it. I'm a big nerd. I, I don't, you know, pretend to be otherwise. And it's funny, like my girlfriend, for example, um, has shown an interest in graphic design and coding. So there's an awesome opportunity there for mentorship and tutelage. We've identified fun side projects we can work on together. So it's kind of blossomed into a way to enhance my social life, not just my professional life. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to be coding 24-7. And I just, I have to put things down and say, Saturday is for going outside or going to a museum, not for learning JavaScript. 
And it's it's yeah, I, I've learned the hard way that when you when you burn the candle at both ends, you start to hate the work that you do, and that's not a good sort of dynamic to uh, to live your life with. So as you do get older, what what do you think that that balance? What does it look like then to be able to work on these side projects that are fulfilling, but also have enough gas left in the tank to do your job? Yeah, I mean, it's a gut feeling at the end of the day, right? Like, I don't force myself to work if I don't want to. I really only do it because I feel like I'm getting value out of it. And I've developed enough of a sort of callus, if you will, to be like, nah, I need to put this down. This is not working out. I'm not getting any value or having fun with it. So I think it's just knowing yourself and knowing where your limits are. And unfortunately, not many people find those limits until they've, you know, gone past them and burnt out. I've certainly been on that end of the thing. So I kind of just listen to my gut now and it's 10 tends to work out. Going back to style guides for a second, I'm curious as a, uh, as an advocate and a, um, uh, I'll go so far as to say a connoisseur of style guides, uh, who out there would you say has a great style guide and why? Who has a great style guide and why? A couple come to mind. Uh, so GitHub has a fantastic style guide. Um, a lot of thought has gone into the content model and justifying the design decisions that are there and building a super robust process for contributions to the style guide. So I think they've set the the bar very high for what it looks like to have something that is in fact living and not just like this deliverable out there for the world to see. So highly recommend checking out GitHub's uh, style guide. I think uh there's a company, I think it's Palantir, they have one called Blueprint. It's a JavaScript, I think React maybe style guide. It has some of the coolest componentry I've ever seen. And a lot of it's a function of the, the data heavy applications that they do. So it's kind of nice to see how certain style guides are a total function of the product work or the client work that a particular company does. They're not all cookie cutter. They're not all like bootstraps of the world. Um, so I really do encourage people to go out there and see how folks have identified different atomic units of different businesses because the UI elements that you build and the experiences that you build are are neat and different. And I think it expands our horizons as designers. Um, those two come to mind. Um, can't think of any others at the moment. With the GitHub example, does that mean that um, to contribute to it uh, or to contribute to any style guide, does this mean that you need to at least have a baseline of, of Git skills? Not necessarily, right? I think if it's a code style guide, um, knowing version control is helpful because at the end of the day, you're manipulating code and having governance through version control is just a natural application. But there's nothing to stop you from, you know, if you're hosting design artifacts um, that are static in nature, making sure you have the ability to add comments and, you know, add versions and show change over time. I think it's really clear that you just illustrate why it's important to, to, to give feedback and it's kind of set the bar for what it means to give meaningful feedback about why something should change or why it shouldn't work. And code's a great way to do that, but I'm sure there are other you know means that are less technical in nature. So in your current gig, you have a pretty strong technical background and straddle roles that at larger companies would be siloed into, oh, this is something that just a designer does or this is just something that the engineer does. On a small team in a startup, how how are you going about defining your role on that team? And, and are there things that are just kind of hands-off for a designer or an engineer? Not necessarily. Nothing's hands-off. I think we all, you know, carry that weight evenly. 
And, you know, there's always a million fires to put out. And again, I have to be judicious about which hat is going to allow me to put out that fire the fastest. I obviously have my biases. Uh, I want to be using code all the time to solve every problem. I've learned in the past couple of weeks that that is not the way to move fast and solve problems. It's a fast way to uh, make everyone crazy because you're behind or using the wrong tool and everyone gets upset with you. So I think nothing's really hands off. And we encourage that sort of cross pollination that I think small teams have the luxury of enabling. At bigger companies, it's obviously more difficult given the siloing and titling that happens. Um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying the healthy mix of, you know, pull an engineer into a sketching session, pull an engineer into a user interview, just as an engineer might pull me over to solve some funky Flexbox CSS problem or some funky JavaScript issue that he or she isn't, you know, capable of solving. What are you looking to learn next? Are you looking to go deeper on, you know, design systems? Or are you looking to expand design, other design skills, or go be more technical? How, how are you approaching it? Yeah. Um, I think going deeper on design systems is something I'm keenly interested in now, just because I'm at the cusp of something that I think has the potential to expose me to a lot of those challenges that I alluded to at the beginning about setting up proper governance and making sure contribution looks great. I think that'll be a natural byproduct of my work, my daily work. So that's kind of, um, I can compartmentalize in that and have confidence that it'll happen. I think on my free time, I've been doing a lot of mobile work lately. I've never considered myself a strong mobile designer. I still don't. But what's neat about tools like React Native and the sort of like convergence of front end and the mobile world, I am keenly interested in building up those skills and being able to build some quick either mobile prototypes or maybe even full-fledged mobile apps just because the tools allow us to do that now. So super, super excited. Um, I think there's a, a massive opportunity there for designers to kind of take the reins and show what it looks like to move fast on the web or on, on mobile, I should say. So is the approach there um, using React uh, Native to using essentially your front-end skills to... Uh, use React Native to build a native mobile app? Yeah, precisely. So React Native allows you to use React and effectively, at the end of the day, get a native uh, mobile application. I think that's an awesome way to use front end to solve a problem that I don't think many people thought we would be solving right now. Um, and it's kudos to the folks at, uh, at Facebook for making that a possibility. I think we're seeing, too, the massive opportunity there to you know, go back to design systems, you can now share componentry across a web and mobile, right? If you're using a tool like React, because it's the same code at the end of the day. So now thinking about style guides across platform, not just across product, is another way to really slice and dice that beast and think about the challenges that emerge there. It's really cool. Speaking of React and, and other Facebook products, it seems like when Facebook does something, the industry and the design community kind of... Uh, not. <laughs> reacts to it um that was terrible um but they've kind of made it known in their conference this year that augmented reality and, and virtual reality is something that they want to make like a big investment a big push into in the coming years and i wonder does either of those fields excite you in any way I'm going to sound like a total iconoclast. They really don't. I just, I'm not super interested in AR or VR. Um, don't get me wrong. I think it's very cool. I think it's awesome that we're 
capable of using those tools so cheaply and freely now. And I think that anytime technology allows us to do that, I think that's something we should obviously recognize and take advantage of. But in my day to day, I certainly don't wake up going, gosh, what's the next VR thing? Or how can I, you know, use my skills to, to move the needle to that end? Maybe that'll change. But for now, it's not the focal point. We've mentioned a few times um, this idea of uh, mentoring and teaching others and also like learning uh, a lot along the way. Um, Are there any channels or venues where you're exercising those muscles? Yeah, so I sit in a couple of different Slack rooms for a couple of the different tools that I use on a daily basis. Um, One's a CSS library called Tachyons. Uh, It's one of these functional CSS libraries. I love sitting in there and fielding questions because, again, it's it's almost like trivia. I hate to, to liken it to that, but it's like someone has a niche or a specific question. How well do I know this tool or framework and how quickly can I respond to them? And it's an awesome way to cement your knowledge but also do good in the process. So finding opportunities to, that, to do that is helpful. It also kind of breaks up maybe the monotony of a, of a boring day or, you know, a day that's slammed. So that's a great way to sort of context switch and get value. Otherwise, just I have, you know, mentees who give me calls every now and then when we get coffee and talk about a problem or talk about it, you know, a situation they're going through. That's a great way to, you know, face an unknown challenge or face an unknown topic and pour your heart into it and hope that at the end of the day, both of you walk away with a better sense of where you're going and why. So it's always a work in progress. You always learn something about yourself or others. And I I really enjoy that aspect of mentorship. Yeah. See, it's interesting that you mentioned that you're getting value out of a Slack channel because I feel like I've been on so many Slack channels where um, they just feel like extra responsibility and noise at some point. Leave those Slack channels is my advice. If you're not getting that value, I think it's just to your point, like this constant fear of missing out. Like, oh, is there a conversation brewing in a channel that I'm not a part of? Like, I think life's too short. I think you should apply your time where you really think you're getting the most value and create those opportunities for yourself because it's it's often hard for them to find you. So going back to the beginning, the the way beginning, oh boy. before you even got into design or, or would call yourself a designer, was there anything in particular that like drew you to this profession? Definitely. So if you rewind, rewind the clock, I should say, um, about seven or eight years I was studying French and political science, thinking I'd be the next diplomat uh, to France or however you describe that. Um, And it took working in Washington for a couple of years to realize that that was a fool's errand. It was never going to happen. But what's interesting and what I've thought about a lot recently is my love for the French language, I feel like is a perfect parallel to my love for the languages that I use um, in my day-to-day at work, like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. There's something tremendously personally satisfying about understanding a grammar, understanding a syntax, and applying it to solve a problem. And that problem can be trite or banal, like ordering a piece of bread at a bakery in Paris, or it can be like stringing together some JavaScript to make a button do a thing and talk to a backend. For me, I see a massive connection there, and I think that's why I love to pour myself into developing these more code-based skills. Um, But at the end of the day, I do have this like feeling that "Mm, maybe I'm not doing exactly what I thought I'd be doing and I should be applying myself in this political or sort of like government type way, especially considering our climate. But I think I'm happy with where I've landed and it does seem like a a fairly strong dovetail. What was it about working in the political arena that was not doing it for you? Yeah. So, you know, I had this false illusion that things moved more quickly in Washington and elsewhere, uh, and that when there were problems and people identified solutions, folks would be quick to take them up. 
Um, it's, I was disabused of that idea fairly quickly. And I think that was deeply frustrating. And one of the things I love about the work that we do is that the technology allows us to go so fast, right? And it's allowing us to go faster and faster and faster. And there's caution to be had there, right? Like things are moving so quickly that I made the joke earlier about three different JavaScript frameworks coming out in the time we've been talking, but that's probably true. Like to be, to be quite honest, that's probably true. And I think we are faced with this sort of cognitive load in our industry of constant change. And sometimes it makes it hard to focus on what you're the best at doing or what provides the most value to you. That's an interesting point because I feel like, you know, we, we do have to be kind of quick to adapt to new technologies and you know, new frameworks that are available to us to do our job. I'm curious what you envision if you've thought into the near or distant future and, and into what type of work you think you'll be doing as the industry shifts. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think the web is becoming a super, super interesting place. So for example, you know, we can animate at 60 frames per second now in the browser. That's just like, it was unheard of 10 years ago. We can do grid-based layouts in 2017. Who would have thunk it? So I'm really eager to see what's going to happen now where the tools of the web are finally allowing designers who are much stronger visually than me to really apply their skills and not be encumbered by the tools that they have to use to, to make them happen. So I'm really sticking around for the ride there and hope I can pair with some super talented visual designers to translate some beautiful grid-based designs or just wacky animations or interactions to the web because it's it's doable now. It's kind of interesting that you use the qualifier visual for designer. I'm curious, what, what if you had to define the sort of essentials that go into a product designer's toolkit, what would those be? Yeah. So product design is an interesting one. I mean, my notion of product design is that of, you know, helping some company, let's say, um, make sure that the idea that they're executing on, right, uh, is research. They understand the users, the beneficiaries of this service or value that they're providing. And it's the product designer's responsibility to sort of be that empathizer in chief, uh, to borrow that term we talk about here at Pivotal, um, understand those users, relay those insights back to the team at large and constantly be the advocate for their needs so that the business doesn't steer in the wrong direction or move in a way that'll uh, jeopardize the initiative. Now, what's interesting about that is it's not just talking to users and relaying that information. It's oftentimes using the tools of visual design to build stimulus to test. It's often using the tools of interaction design to add fidelity to those stimulus stimuli. I think that's the one. It's using front-end development to help uh, engineers on a team understand your decisions, right? So it's cool that product design is sort of this nebulous but all-encompassing way of approaching design that does expose you to a lot of those different skill sets that are complementary, I think, more than dissonant. In the different environments that you've worked at, do you feel that an employer understands that that term design and how the borders around skill sets can be quite nebulous. Um, you're shaking your head. No. So no, <laughs> tell me about that. yeah, it's tough, right? Like titles and words are really, really difficult. And sometimes they get in the way uh, of collective understanding. I think that's a problem we deal with constantly, even in talking with users during user interviews, right? Like using the wrong word can totally screw up the tenor of your conversation and prevent you from getting the feedback you're looking for. Design's particularly tough in that, again, we have our preconceived notions about what design is, you know, like the make it pretty of the world or like we don't certainly look at it that way. But 
oftentimes it just bears repeating to those who kind of have those preconceived notions the ways in which your definition can diverge from theirs and showing that there's value in it being sort of an all-encompassing field and not you know, striking fear into their hearts that it's this all-encompassing nebulous thing. It's a tricky balance, but um, I think bringing it back to the value it provides is a great way to sort of buy that understanding and make sure folks are on the same page. This has been awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Design Related with today's guest, Matt Rothenberg. You can check out a lot of his writing at his blog at mattrothenberg.com and give us a follow on Twitter and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening.